0: I want you to imagine that there's an apartment building that's on fire. And you're outside, you got a huge crowd outside the building. And you look up and you see a child who's in a third-story window, kids frightened, crying out for help. And you see, fortunately, a firefighter start rushing through the crowd toward that building. Now, look, she bumps into a couple of people on the way. She's pushing people out of the way. Maybe she steps on somebody's foot, knocks a cell phone from somebody's hand. But her sole focus is on saving that kid. And she does, just in time, right before the building is totally consumed in flames. Now, how would you react to that firefighter? Uh, would Would you cheer? Would you applaud? Would you call the firefighter a hero? Pat her on the back, say, well done, or... Would you criticize her for the way she went about it? Knocking somebody's cell phone on the ground, bumping people, rushing into the building, being rude? Would you tell her that if she can't figure out how to save somebody without any mistakes or errors, she shouldn't try to be a hero at all? Now, imagine for a moment that the person trapped in that burning building is not a child, but one of the many individuals caught up in the criminal justice system. And the firefighter is not a person, but a piece of legislation. Now, that legislation might be flawed or not perfectly executed, but it's the only thing with a chance of freeing people. Because without it, without a hero, even an imperfect one, they are going to go down with that building. This is Incarceration Incorporated, and I'm your host, Van Jones. In December 2018, President Trump signed into law the First Step Act. Now, it's the most significant criminal justice legislation in decades, according to the New York Times. It's a bipartisan bill, and here's some of the stuff it's intended to do. Number one, it's going to expand the job training programs in prison to reduce recidivism rates among federal prisoners. It's going to scale back some of the harshest criminal penalties from way back in the 80s and 90s, including mandatory life sentences for third-strike drug offenses. It's going to prohibit pregnant women from being shackled uh, when they're giving birth to their babies. It's going to ban solitary confinement for juveniles and give thousands of people an opportunity to petition a judge for their freedom. That bill is now law. It's not a perfect law. but It's called the First Step Act for a reason. It's the first step, and we've got about 20 more steps to go. But it is real progress. Cut 50, an organization that I helped to found with Jessica Jackson, played a big role in getting this bill passed. And we worked with Enamide Chettyar on that legislation as well. It's only natural that in our conversation on this podcast, the First Step Act was a jumping off point to discuss a whole range of solutions, both legislative and otherwise, for reforming the criminal justice system. Here's how some of our conversation went down. And uh, you know, at, at the federal level, uh, there's been a little bit of breakthrough and momentum. We had the First Step Act uh, talk a little bit about the the horizon going forward, uh, state and federal. Uh, where do you think there's real possibility for us to make more progress as we as we uh, move forward?
1: Yeah, you know what is really interesting about this issue is in the last couple of years, very quickly, the politics on this have actually started to shift in the right direction. So when we had in the 80s and 90s and even early 2000s, politicians talking about let's get tough on crime, lock people up for longer, now we have people actually saying the opposite. And not just lefty people, but you have President Trump talking about this as well, where there actually really is a bipartisan Census around trying to reduce prison populations, which is how we got the First Step Act. And what I think is quite interesting about the First Step Act is it contains some very modest sentencing reforms that even as of a couple years ago were considered um, very moderate and something that was in between left and right. But now you see this administration championing this as the Trump criminal justice reform bill, which I think significantly shifts the politics towards the progressive end of this, because if that's the bill that this administration is championing, then that means that other people need to be bringing forward a lot, you know, a lot more bolder ideas than what has been given to date. So, for example, you see with all of these uh, Democratic presidential candidates for 2020. Really, almost all of them prioritizing criminal justice reform. I mean, of course, a lot of them have work to do in terms of their solutions, um, but it's a significant shift in the politics. And so I do think that there is a large opportunity to um, bring forward some some much needed change.
0: So uh, I think a lot of people were shocked to see Trump endorse uh, any kind of criminal justice bill. Um, I was, you know, proud to, to work on that. Jessica, you worked on that. Um, wh- what is the significance politically, uh, to NMI's point, of Trump being involved in this issue at all?
2: I think that the, issue, that the significance is huge. This is a president who campaigned on American carnage. Literally the day he was elected, I remember you and I making the decision to close down our clemency campaign, uh, to focus on state work to give up any hope for the federal work. And a year and a half later, we got a call from Jared Kushner asking us to come to the White House to start working on this issue with them and see if we could put together a federal prison and sentencing reform bill. And I remember, you know, while neither of us hesitated at the opportunity to help people inside, I was pretty skeptical. I wasn't quite sure that this was going to be the president that got it done. Um, but, you know, it did get done, and while it's just a first step, and it certainly didn't have as much reform in there as is needed or had even been in previous iterations, that first step really changed the conversation in a significant way. We're hearing from conservatives across the country um, that they want to get bolder on this issue and that they feel like now they've got some political cover because they've seen Trump go from American carnage and tough on crime to the idea of being tough but fair and talking about how there's not a lot of fairness in the system and how we need to change our laws to not only increase public safety and reduce recidivism, but also to increase fairness. Um, We've seen a bunch of governors coming together talking about wanting to see more reform in their states. And we've seen more governors uh, issuing clemency and commutations in their states. While I think there were a lot of attempts in the past, I think the fact that it was Trump is very significant because it gives conservatives a lot of cover to be bolder on this issue.
1: So, I mean, I think that's exactly right, that it has emboldened conservatives. Uh, I would also add that I think it's actually also pushing Democrats because so since 2007, this movement has been going on in the state legislatures that's been predominantly driven by Republicans. And so I think that having a president who is seen as, you know, definitely not a champion for racial justice, supporting these policies is is pushing the Democrats. And so I think that this is also going to be pushing um, a lot of Democratic leaders to come out with more forward-looking proposals, too?
2: I think... This has also stretched the conversation beyond just Democrats and Republicans and into the business community. You know, we saw Fox Broadcasting endorse the First Step Act. We saw Verizon endorse the First Step Act. Now we're seeing the administration reawakening a call for business leaders to hire the people that are coming home from prison because they realize in order for this bill to have been successful, everybody's going to need a job. We literally had... Uh, the first woman who was released under the First Step Act, come to the White House and meet with Jared Kushner. And when he realized she didn't have a job when she was coming home, he got on the phone with Walmart and asked them to give her an interview. Um, so now Walmart's engaged.
0: You know, Jessica, you know, you have a focus on uh, dignity for incarcerated women. And, you know, I don't think most people understand in other countries, uh, they don't you know, just dehumanize and humiliate people the way that we do in this country. Why do you think the solution of trying to make prisons less horrible for women is such an important breakthrough?
2: Yeah. So I think that the Dignity Campaign has given us uh, something that this movement really needed. We needed to grow the tent. For a long time, it's been folks on the left uh, talking about issues, you know, from a moral standpoint, a human standpoint. Uh, the, they're seeing the damage. They're seeing people going to prison and in, in jails. And now this dignity campaign has allowed us to really broaden that tent by pulling in conservatives and pulling in people who have never been interested in this issue ever in their life um, and maybe had their own preconceived notions about who's in prison and what's happening there. But as soon as you start talking to them about the fact that You know, we're shackling women who are in labor. We're not giving women the hygiene items that they need. We're, you know, sending male guards into bathrooms, into medical areas where women are in a state of undress. Um, You know, they get interested, and they start seeing this as a different issue, and they start wanting to get involved. And this is one of those issues where once you're introduced to it and you start to learn about what's happening inside of our prison system, and who's who's inside there, um, you start to care and you start to want to do more.
0: There are a number of ways to do more, as Jessica says, that don't involve going to Washington, D.C. Phaedra Ellis-Lampkin's approach was not to head to the nation's capital, but to go instead to Silicon Valley. You know, Phaedra, you actually have, uh, as an African-American woman, gone to Silicon Valley, raised millions of dollars. You've launched a successful uh, technology-based startup called Promise. Can you talk a little bit about the solutions on the tech side? I think Silicon Valley stepping up to the plate could be the biggest game changer. Can you talk about that? Yeah.
3: Um, Really what we're trying to understand is a couple of things. First is fundamentally, how do we build technology for our folks, right? And so part of what I think is really important is that folks like us create technology so that we solve the problems that are important to our own communities. And so Promise is really about how do you reduce the number of people who are incarcerated and specifically people who shouldn't be there. And so there's two types of ways and two different types of products we work with. One is we work with folks who are under community supervision or who are incarcerated that we think should be out. So for example, in a place like North Dakota, working with a sheriff um, to get people out of jail and if figure out what supports we can provide so that people don't sit in jail on a pretrial when they haven't been convicted of a crime just because they can't afford bail. And then um, what are the things that we can do? Because we know that if people are incarcerated, um, they're more likely to take a plea deal and then more likely to potentially end up incarcerated again for some small technical violation. So what we do there is work with people and think about what's the technology that also teaches them what works. Because part of what we're starting to learn is that, Uh, Parenting classes do seem to provide support, but I'm not sure that AA does specifically because someone's been arrested for a DUI. So what works? How do we understand what supports people need so that they don't end up incarcerated again? Um, So that's one part. The second thing we're launching right now that I'm really excited about is an uh, application that allows for payment plans and ability to pay for traffic tickets. Mm. Because part of what we learned is we started to see all these people who are ending up in jail for these minor infractions, traffic tickets, parking tickets. And so we're launching um, something with a couple of jurisdictions that will allow someone to say, I can't pay this ticket, verify that they qualify for something like an earned income tax credit and reduce what they owe, and then pay that in a payment plan so that they're not in violation of the court. Because all we want to do is figure out what are the ways in which we can make it as easy as possible for someone to not have these punitive measures
0: in their life. That sounds pretty cool, right? You know that saying, there's an app for that? Well, with Vedra's company, Promise, there's an app for freedom. After the break, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about other solutions in the push to end mass incarceration. That's up next.
1: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life
3: wherever you get your podcasts. You have to be prepared to sacrifice whatever
1: is necessary to reach your goal. My goal was meeting the man who killed my mother. Be ready and willing to give up and to sacrifice the things that mean something to you so that you can accomplish the thing that means the most.
0: Sooner or later, we have to start celebrating the humanity in each and every one of us. And I feel like that there's a real revolution in process right now. We're all revolutionaries
4: to put love back on the planet.
3: The justice system is focused on the laws, they have a set book of rules that they go by. A lot of times, crimes are committed for reasons way other than what the justice system thinks or makes it out to be done for. You know, so it, it allows the offender to actually express to the victim why they are who they are.
0: Now, that was Mariah Lucas and Donald Lacey and Callan Gill. They were talking about their experiences participating in something called restorative justice. Now, all of them were featured on the podcast Restorative Justice on the Rise to discuss my docuseries, The Redemption Project. Now, restorative justice is a practice that's rooted in traditions that go really way back to the start of human history when villagers would just sit down in a circle and discuss an issue to find a way forward. In the 1970s, the U.S. began to incorporate practices like restorative justice into our criminal justice system with juvenile offenders. Now, since then, at least 35 states have passed legislation that allow offenders of all ages to participate in the practice. The Restorative Justice Project of the University of Wisconsin School of Law lays out five principles that form the basis of this practice. Number one, crime is a violation of people and relationships. Number two, victims and the community are central to the justice process. Number three, a primary focus of a justice process is to assist victims and address their needs. Number four, the secondary focus is restoring the community to whatever degree is possible. Finally, number five, all human beings have dignity and worth. So it's this belief in dignity and worth that fuels the work of people like Topeka K. Sam and Chaka Singor, who are activists they're really on the front lines of the criminal justice reform fight. Here's some more of my conversation with them. Topeka, you are somebody who's helping to lead the Parole and Probation Accountability Project. You've helped us out at the Reform Alliance. Tell me a little bit, though, about the Parole and Probation Accountability Project.
5: Sure. So, again, it came from just my personal experience of being on supervision and having all of these arbitrary things happen to me and realizing that it, was, it wasn't it was only me it was happening to. And so what I realized when a person is empowered and understand what not only is, I guess, required of them, but what their probation officer is required to do for them— that actually really changes what the conversation is and what the culture is. And so we've created a Know Your Rights Guide, which lets people know that, hey, there is a grievance process that you can go through to hold your probation officer accountable, that here are resources that you need within your your state, your federal jurisdiction, your county, your district. And so we're doing the guide federally, also New York Philadelphia first and then we're replicating it in Oregon Detroit New Orleans and then California and then looking to do a guide in each single state because we do know unfortunately you know each state has different guidances as it relates to probation and parole what we do in New York or what's happening on a federal level is very different and so what I know is opposed to going to a probation officer and asking them for help when they're overworked and underpaid making sure that people have the resources at their hands whether it is through a physical book whether it is through an app whether it is on a website we're making sure that we're getting these resources to the community so that they can empower themselves to be able to transform their lives and so it's really really exciting Mm -hmm. Um, some of the great partners that we have on that and the APPA has just got on board so um, we're excited.
0: What's the APPA?
5: It's the American Probation and Parole Association. So they have the ability of making sure that the guide goes to every single office, every single probation office, whether state or federal in the country. Mm -hmm. And so our idea is when you come into probation and parole and you get an intake packet at the same time, that person is getting a know your rights guide. So both parties understand that they are both accountable to each other. Mm. And that way that we're starting off this relationship in a place that will actually be helpful and less
0: harmful you know shaka you know uh, you are a, a best-selling author you're a producer um, but you also do real work Absolutely. i mean you're not just a kind of rising celebrity you're somebody who you know, you're the head of the anti-recidivism coalition uh, in los angeles um, talk a little bit about the, the work that you think uh, needs to be done and the work you're doing every day to try to make a difference
4: one of the things that struck me very early on was the power of art to influence culture and for culture to influence politics. I was mortified when Meek Mills was sent back to prison for a seemingly ridiculous um, violation that was imposed and led to him being in prison. And what I realized is that we have to shift the I got you culture to the mm-hmm. I support you culture. And in order to do that, people have to see it, you know, the the. It was shocking to me that so many people thought that he deserved to be in prison. And so that was a cultural thing. And what it said to me is that we're not doing enough culturally to help create transparency so people can see how systems work. So what I do in my day-to-day life as the executive director of the Anti-Recidivism Coalition is try to empower our members to take control of their narratives that brings people in proximity to the issue. To help people see that these are people who serve their time And now they're returning to society. And instead of us looking at them and saying, I got you when you did something wrong, it's saying, you know what? I want to support you on your journey. Mm -hmm. I want to provide you with the resources to make sure that you can reestablish yourself in society and reimagine a life for yourself and your family. And so what we do in our day-to-day work is ensure that people have access to employment, that we remove those barriers. And we've been able to work with a lot of organizations and a lot of companies who, in the past, had impediments if you had a felony. And because they've been in proximity to our members, and they realize that these are just everyday people who made poor decisions in their youth, served their time, and they just want to get out and they just want to do work. They want to go to school. They want to contribute meaningfully to their community. And so my responsibility is to help foster those relationships and cultivate culture in a way through storytelling, through my writing, uh, through speaking on you know across a broad spectrum of, of platforms, to ensure that people can understand that if you just spend some time with us, mm-hmm. you'll realize that we aren't, uh, you know, your greatest nightmare—the mm-hmm. boogeyman that that you've been sold on. You know, and a lot of my experience, uh, especially in the last few years, is working alongside yourself and uh, other incredible human beings uh, out in this work. Was when I went to Germany and I saw how they, from the very beginning of a person's encounter with law enforcement are working feverishly to make sure that these people return to their communities healthy and whole. I knew that if we can replicate that model, whether it was through culture, through art, mm-hmm. that we can change the world. And just, you know, my my last point is uh, with the passing of a community icon, Nipsey Hussle, uh, we saw a man who exhibited what was possible for communities and we see how the world is responding because he's been able to bring them into proximity of a neighborhood that was hurting that's right. and show them that if you put the work in, if you invest in people, that you can produce different outcomes and that's what we're trying to do. Uh, with the work at ARC and Reform mm-hmm. and this coalition of incredible people who are working together. Because sometimes people think we're working mm-hmm. all in our little silos and bubbles, <laughs> but the reality is, yeah. we're first of all, we're all good friends in That's various right. ways, mm-hmm. uh, but we're all committed to justice, and we want to see people come home healthy and whole. So we just need more people to, to support the I-support-you culture mm-hmm. as opposed to the I-got-you mm-hmm. culture. That's great. Well, I, I hadn't heard that uh,
0: way of saying it, but it's it's, it's literally like... Uh, I got you versus I got your back. You know, it's literally just a completely different mindset.
5: I would take it as far as saying like enough is enough as it relates to how we continue to criminalize people for poverty, um, for substance misuse, for gender inequity, for racism. Like enough is enough there. Right. I think once we start to begin to rebuild a culture of love, Peace, hope, um, dignity, and looking at people as people, right? Like humans first. That's you know what we say through our project: humans first. Like you know, people first. If we begin to look at people as people and understand, yes, that there are going to be cultural differences because that's just how we were created by our creator, right? But that we need to begin to embrace those cultural differences, begin to understand what that looks like, and begin to to create and build a world that's more just for every human being that's birthed into 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 existence, right? So like that's my 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 first thought overall. And then when I start to kind of go into the criminal legal system and where I think of there, you know, we have to first start at, you know, what like defining what is really punishment and what is crime. Like let's th- like we need to redefine that, right? Like, you know, so often when I think about People who have been incarcerated because of poverty and yet they have lack of opportunities and all these barriers. How can we expect a person to not do what they need to do to feed their five children if we're not offering up those opportunities to them, right? And so, who is really then held accountable? Who should be held accountable if there's so many people that I know that I come in in, in touch with through Ladies of Hope that they have been incarcerated because of stealing pampers, formula, food. And it's not even I have women who have never even have a substance misuse issue, but have tried over and over to again to get a a job some form of employment and because of maybe some type of mental health that had deterred them or abuse that had been untreated trauma that has happened and haven't had anybody to help them process that that then that develops into other areas in our lives that then happen to land people on a prison bunk right and then when you think about people who are incarcerated You know, at what point is enough enough? You know, what about after Mm -hmm. sentencing, right? I've been sentenced (laughs) and (laughs) that this is the sentence. And so now enough is enough. Now I'm going off to do my time. And -hmm. if that's the case, then, you know, I remember they say the first day of incarceration is when the reentry process is, is to start. So then why is it set up while you're incarcerated as being punitive? Everything. Right. Shaka, like you talked about the trip to Germany. I was blessed and fortunate enough to go last year and I cried. When I was in um, Norway in that prison and I was like, well, to see like one room, as one person in a room, it was better than my college dorm room, right? Like showers in the room, TVs, telephones. Um, the officers, as we know them, didn't call themselves officers, you know, and people were in there in their regular clothes. They were, I didn't see any guns or any mace or anything like that visible. And it's like, OK, you understand when enough is enough. Like if I'm coming into a system after being criminalized my entire life, just even because of the basis of the color of my skin. And then I come into a prison system that now is going to be even more arbitrary, more punitive, has erased me from existence. I no longer have a name. I'm inmate such and such. And now I have to begin to process that. And then I'm supposed to come out into a system where for federal supervision, you're in the halfway house and you're called that same registered number. When you're on home confinement, they call you. You have to pick up the phone. I remember I couldn't even say, hi, this is Topeka. I had to say four, two, nine, 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 oh, three, seven. I will never forget that number. Right. And it's like, so now I'm in society and it's over and over. So when is enough enough? <laughs> right? enough. I think yeah. like enough, been enough, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know,
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's a specific Ebonics tense. Been done. Been done. Been yeah. enough.
5: Look, that's a for look. everybody to understand. Yeah. <laughs> been yeah. enough.
0: Yeah. Well, listen, I, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate. Um, You know, the honesty, the candor, the insight, um, but also just the genius and the wisdom of, you know, the people who have been through this process. You know, no pressure, no diamonds. Mm. And we have so many Mm. diamonds now uh, in our country. And it's time to let folks shine. And it's time for us to follow uh, the leadership and and the direction of people who've been through hell and are trying to get the rest of us free. The the one thing I don't think people understand is um, all of us are imprisoned when you create a society like this. And so it's not just getting folks uh, free uh, who are physically locked up. It's about creating a freedom movement to get everybody out of a system and a society that would let this much injustice happen. And you guys are on the front lines of it. You're leading it. Um, uh, and, And I'm just honored to be a part of this movement with you. I think it's really ironic uh, that two of the big grassroots movements that developed during the Obama administration, the Tea Party on the right, and then Black Lives Matter on the left, both ultimately pushed the country toward criminal justice reform. You know, think about it this way, but the Tea Party, you know, they got this libertarian, fiscal hawk kind of view. And they put a whole bunch of Republican governors and state legislators in the office who didn't want to raise taxes to keep paying for more prisons to lock up more people. And that began a process by which, you know, Governor Rick Perry uh, closed eight prisons in Texas. Uh, Governor uh, Deal in Georgia passed criminal justice reform and brought the prison population and the crime rate down simultaneously. And we saw this trend happening in so many other places across the country. While that was going on on the right, on the left, you had Black Lives Matter. And we saw a new generation of activists that were not only advocating for criminal justice reform, but demanding accountability from those in the Democratic Party for their role in enabling mass incarceration in the first place. And that's been especially an issue uh, for Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, and other politicians who advocated for the Clinton crime bill back in the 1990s. There is... Much more work to be done, and this fight's going to continue. But as somebody who's been working on this for 25 years, I think that the mere fact you can say the words mass incarceration and people want to know more or they actually already know exactly what you're talking about, that is a huge, huge new development. And my hope is that more folks are going to join the conversation. And one day, at least when it comes to locking up people, the United States will not be number one. If you want to know more about how restorative justice works, check out my docu-series called The Redemption Project on CNN.com go. It will take you into the room as people uh, who've caused real harm and gone to prison for that uh, come face-to-face with the people that they hurt and they have conversations for the very first time, face-to-face, sometimes knee-to-knee, and you get a chance to see the restorative justice process in action. It's beautiful. It's heartbreaking. It's hopeful. I hope you'll watch it. Again, you can visit cnn.com redemption to learn a lot more. If you like this episode, head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. And leave us ratings and a comment while you're there. I want to give a really big thank you to our guest, Enemai Chettyar. Was recently named the Federal Legislative and Policy Director at the Justice Action Network and the Coalition for Public Safety. Uh, before leaving the Brennan Center, she co edited a book called Ending Mass Incarceration Ideas from Today's Leaders. It's just full of all kinds of essays from lawmakers and activists on criminal justice, including Alicia Garza, uh, Topeka K. Sam, and even me. I also want to thank uh, Phaedra Ellis Lambkins. She is the co founder and the CEO of Promise. Uh, Again, they got the app for freedom. And for more information about what they do, go find them on joinpromise.com. Also, I want to thank Jessica Jackson. She's my co-founder at Cut 50. We're a national bipartisan initiative with a mission to reduce the prison population uh, by 50%. You can follow Jessica on Twitter at Jesse Michelle. That's J-E-S-S-Y and Michelle with one L. And you can learn more about Cut50 at cut50.org. That's cut and then the numbers 50.org. Thank you also to Dr. Brian Levens, the principal for Justice System Partners. Now, they're online at justicesystempartners.org. Dr. Levens is also the co-editor for the American Probation and Parole Association's quarterly periodical called Perspectives, which you can uh, learn more about at appa-net.org. Uh, that's appa-net.org. You can follow him on Twitter at BKWinston. That's W-I-N-S-T-I-N. Also want to thank Tapika K Sam. She's the founder and executive director of the Ladies of Hope Ministry, which helps marginalized women and girls transition back into society through access to resources and education, etc. You can find Ladies of Hope Ministry at the L-O-H-M.com. And to learn more about the Parole and Probation Accountability Project that Topeka mentioned in this episode, you can visit the ppaproject.org. Again, that's the ppaproject.org. And finally, thank you to Shaka Senghor. He's the Executive Director of the Anti Recidivism Coalition. That's an organization that's got a mission to provide support and advocacy for people coming home from prison. Learn more about them at anti Incarceration Incorporated with Van Jones was produced by Amy Eason, Elizabeth Roberts, and Emma Sislowski with additional support from Andy Lichtenfeld and Gus Alexander at the Reform Alliance. Excerpts from the podcast Restorative Justice on the Rise were provided courtesy of the host and executive producer Molly Leach. You can find out more at restorativejusticeontherise.org. Special thanks also to Lizzie Fox. Molly Harrington, Sierra Cowan, Damian Prado, Bree Hare, Nydia Chambers, John Adler, and Amy Intellis. I also want to thank the Reform Alliance, where I am the founding CEO. Uh, we're working very hard to completely transform the probation and parole system in the United States of America. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Ben Jones.